0: In July of 1776, the 13 colonies together declared independence from Great Britain, and a new nation was formed, of sorts. In reality, we had become 13 mini-nations in a federation against a common enemy. It wasn't until 1789, with the advent of the U.S. Constitution, that we truly became the United States of America that we know today. Leading up to that moment, Several parts of the country were, in effect, on their own. We're going to zero in on a very small place right here in New England that was its own country for a short while, complete with its own government, constitution, elected officials, and armed forces. How did it come about? What happened to it? Did it change the world? Well, probably not. But it's interesting nonetheless, and it's also history. Long before European settlers descended upon New England, there existed several indigenous people's nations. We had the Massachusetts, the Wampanoag, and the Penobscot, among others. Later when the English, French, and Spanish moved in, colonies formed that in many cases later became states, they developed into states. Along the way, many of these states were separate countries, either de facto or actual. Take Rhode Island, for instance. On May 4, 1776, that's a full two months before John Hancock put his signature on the Declaration of Independence, the Ocean State beat him to it. On that date, the General Assembly met in Providence and voted to break all ties with England. It repealed allegiance to the king, it enacted an oath of allegiance to the state, and it decreed that all court proceedings be done in the name of the state. The words, God Save the King, were replaced with, God Save the United Colonies. Well, okay, Rhode Island wasn't exactly setting itself up as a separate country. It was really prodding the other colonies to get their act together and make the break. Massachusetts had done something similar as far back as September 1774. It didn't actually declare independence, but it did the next best thing— It set up a shadow government called the Provincial Congress and elected a president. By the way, that first president was none other than John Hancock. Vermont considered itself a free and independent state from January 15, 1777 to March 4, 1791. Fourteen years. It was known at various times as the Republic of New Connecticut, not very original, the Republic of Vermont, and the Republic of Green Mountain. It even minted its own currency called Vermont coppers. Historian Frederick F. Vanderwater called it the, rel- the reluctant republic because most citizens favored a union with the United States. Even its constitution was designed to fit into the U.S. mold because the residents fully expected to join eventually. When admitted to the Union, it was the 14th state, the first admitted after the original 13 colonies. The Republic of Texas existed for just short of 10 years, from its independence from Mexico in 1836 until its admission to the Union in 1846. During that stretch, it had five presidents. California Republic lasted only 25 days and was never recognized by any other country. It never even had the chance to elect a civil government. The words still appear on the state flag, however. Let's not forget Hawaii. That state was once a kingdom, complete with a working monarchy. In its last independent days, however, it became a republic and a president was installed. Today's topic, however, is about a place much smaller than a state. In this case, it was a town, and not a very big one at that, that became an independent nation before reverting to its original status, which it still has today. The town of Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, has a knack of finding itself between extremes. Its landmass is one of the largest of our nation's incorporated communities, but with a population of 862, it's also one of the smallest. Located at the northernmost tip of the state, Pittsburgh straddles the 45th parallel, exactly halfway between the North Pole and the Equator. Because of a vague clause in the 18th century Treaty of Paris, it was also placed squarely between the fledgling United States and Great Britain's colony in Canada. An odd set of circumstances led to the creation of a small, temporary nation of sorts. Forgotten today to all but historians and trivia fans is the Indian Stream Republic, complete with its own government, constitution, set of laws, and militia. The establishment of the Indian Stream Republic was caused by the ambiguous boundary written as part of the treaty that ended the American Revolution. The dividing line was to run to the northernmost head of the Connecticut River, thence down along the middle of that river to the 45th degree of north latitude. Problem is that there are three tributaries in the area, any of which could be considered the headwaters of the river. A political gray area of about 200 acres situated between the northwest and southeast branches of the waterway was inadvertently created. At first, tax collectors and sheriffs were sent from both governments causing obvious problems with the residents, numbering about 300 at the time. Using their Yankee ingenuity, they came up with a unique fix for this double taxation problem. They declared their independence. According to the history of Coos County, New Hampshire, by Georgia Drew Merrill, on the 6th day of April, 1829, in a public meeting of citizens held at the Center Schoolhouse, the Independence Hall of Pittsburgh, and they proclaimed that they were now part of neither the United States or Great Britain. Official records, though, show that it was on July 9, 1832, at a town meeting, that formalities were settled. Now, before continuing on the story of Pittsburgh, I need to explain to folks from cities or places outside the region how New England town government works. It's unlike anywhere else. The executive branch is headed up not by a mayor or, for that matter, any individual, but rather by a committee, the Board of Selectmen, or in more modern nomenclature, the Select Board. These boards usually consist of either three or five members. One is chosen to chair the group, but traditionally serves in that leadership role for just one year, and the chair rotates through the body. A town's legislative branch is what truly distinguishes New England town government from all others. All local laws, budget decisions, regulations, in fact, all legislative business is handled by a body called the town meeting. It's the equivalent of a city council, or on the state level, the legislature, and for the nation, Congress. A big difference, however, is that in most towns, all but the largest, there's no election to town meeting. All registered voters are automatically members. The body is headed up by a moderator whose job is not to direct the body in a particular direction, but to ensure that the laws are obeyed and that all have a fair chance at debate and voting. It's a very non-political position. In the 1900s, Many larger towns, by necessity, have had to limit the size of town meeting and require election to that body. Even in those places, however, the flavor of open town meeting has been preserved by making those elected town meetings quite large, averaging more than 200 members. Back in the 1800s, though, that was not the case. All towns, including Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, had open town meetings. All were welcome to attend and to participate. Now, back to the creation of this mini-nation. At the town meeting of July 9, 1832, independence was on the agenda. The body adopted a constitution outlining the government that closely resembled that of a New England town. Like the American model, it called for three distinct branches. The executive wing was a supreme council with five elected members. Remember, towns in the region, both then and now, have a select board or board of selectmen with three or five members. As with traditional New England town meetings, the legislative branch was made up of all voting citizens. Justices of the Peace were elected and had authority to hold jury trials. A Bill of Rights, spelled out to the streamers, as they called themselves, freedom of religion, rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness— the right to a trial, and a presumption of innocence, and a ban on unreasonable seizures and searches. Sound familiar? On a vote of 56 to 3, the Constitution was adopted. The moderator of the meeting adjourned the session, and without leaving the podium, immediately reconvened it as the first General Assembly of the country. In keeping with the new situation, his position was renamed Speaker the body proceeded to create a militia consisting of all able-bodied males from 18 to 50. The locals were relatively good at managing their affairs, but suffered problems of self-government as well. As an independent nation, it became a haven for outlaws from both north and south of the border, and the little country didn't have the infrastructure necessary to cope with criminals. According to author Austin George, the jail was not really a jail. It was just a large potash kettle which was placed upside down over the prisoner on a flat rock. Daniel Doane, author of Indian Stream Republic, says the local citizenry clung to the misunderstanding that the United States and Canada had agreed to re- refrain from governing the territory until the boundary dispute was settled. Until then, they just wanted to be left alone. That was not to be the case. Even within the small republic, there were three camps. Indian stream had partisans for both sides of the standoff, and many wanted to remain independent. For three tumultuous years, there were property disputes and tax questions that resulted in both New Hampshire and Great Britain attempting to assert control. Through a series of arrests and then counter-arrests by officials on the North and the South, the people of the very small nation found themselves still caught between two giants. In 1835, word of a potential invasion by the New Hampshire militia prompted a call to Canada for help. A tangled bureaucracy prevented any such aid arriving. A nearby Canadian magistrate was contacted. He then passed the request on to John Moore, an assemblyman for Lower Canada. From there, the request went to the governor. Meanwhile, Sheriff White of New Hampshire announced that he was prepared to uphold the U.S. claim to the region by force if necessary. Giving in to a superior army, Indian Stream effectively ceased to be independent. The controversy did, however, drag on for many more years. Again, according to Doan, the turning point in the situation came with changes in the administrations in both the U.S. and Britain. Both nations felt that the situation at Indian Stream was not worth another war. As part of a comprehensive definition of the national boundary across the continent, Indian Stream was formally ceded to New Hampshire. The British partisans in the town moved to Canada. Those favoring continued independence gave in to the inevitable. Immediately, the people living there petitioned the state legislature to be incorporated as the town of Pittsburgh. And the town that had become a nation, once again, had become a town. Thanks for listening. Come back next time for more tales and tidbits of New England as we dig out another story from Allen's Archives.